0: Hello, my name is Philip Miriton, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking. Exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves. Unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions, this is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Merritton. In his book, The Believing Brain, which, which has this big long subtitle, From Ghosts and Gods to Politics and Conspiracies, How We Construct Beliefs and Reinforce Them as Truths. The author of that book and editor of Skeptic Magazine, Michael Shermer, seeks to show how anyone who believes in strange things must have a wire or two loose in their brains. But at the same time, he quotes a lot of interesting statistics, including the fact that In a survey done by Reader's Digest in 2006 in Britain, 43% of the respondents said they can read other people's minds. More than half of them had a dream or a premonition of an event that then actually happened. More than two-thirds they said they could feel when someone was looking at them. And 62% said that they could tell who was calling before they picked up the phone. So here's the problem. The problem is, is that if we're not supposed to believe in these strange things, and if there are wires loose in our brain, then this, this ailment is affecting something like 50% of humankind. There is something wrong in this picture. One of the things wrong is that our current scientific worldview, as we talk a lot in this show, which is based upon materialism, has really no room for psychic phenomena. Therefore it's put off to the side. Now I'm very happy to have on my show today probably the world's leading researcher into parapsychology. His name is Dr. Dean Radin. He's the Chief Scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and Adjunct Faculty at the Department of Psychology at Sonoma State University before joining the Institute of noetic sciences he held positions at a number of places including AT&T Bell labs Princeton University and SRI International where he worked on a classified program investigating psychic phenomena for the US government he's authored or co-authored something like 200 technical and popular articles and his three books include the award-winning conscious universe which I talk a lot about on the show Entangled Minds, and his new book, which just was released, entitled Supernormal Science, Yoga, and the Evidence for Extraordinary Psychic Abilities. Dr. Radin, thank you very much for joining us. It's great to have you. Thank you. Okay, so what got you interested in the field of psychic abilities or psychic phenomena in the first place? Uh,
1: I get asked this question uh, quite often, and I like to turn it around and say, uh, who do you know who has no interest in this topic? And it's an, it's an easy answer, because when you look at our entertainment business, it's saturated with tales of the, the supernatural and the supernormal. Uh, in the, our literature has been saturated with it from the very beginning. It's simply a part of human experience that reminds us that uh, we don't actually know everything yet, Uh, and despite the uh, sophistication of modern science, the number of people who describe some elements that we would call psychic has not diminished, and more importantly, it it doesn't diminish as education increases, so we're talking here about a fundamental human ability, which I find very curious, as many people do, and the curiosity never went away. So that's why I study it. So,
0: just so the listener could could really understand what we're talking about here, I mean, why don't you describe uh, your your working definition of the psychic phenomena that that is a, that is of interest to you?
1: Well, over the years, uh, the experiences that people report have been given different labels. Uh, When there appears to be a connection from one mind to the next without uh, use of the ordinary senses, we call it telepathy. If there's information that is obtained from a distance or or hidden, we call it clairvoyance. If the information is slipped through time, especially from the future, we'd call it precognition. If the information appears to be from the past, we'd call it retrocognition. Uh, If there is an, uh, an event that seems to show a relationship between mind and matter directly, we call it psychokinesis. So those are the four major types of of phenomena that are reported and the words are basically a, a simplified taxonomy of those effects.
0: Yes, and one of the the problems that I don't think that you know the people who watch TV may not appreciate it, but I know you've experienced it personally and there's many books trying to debunk psychic phenomena, but the problem that I see with psychic phenomena is really not whether it exists or not, but whether the scientific community is accepting it as being a valid source of investigation. What do you attribute that to?
1: Well, science, like like any human enterprise, has vested interests. Uh, in this case, many scientists go through many years of training. And the training includes uh, sometimes explicit assumptions about the way the world works, and sometimes, and more often, uh, implicit assumptions. So, by the time somebody becomes an expert in a field today, uh, they know a, a, a huge amount of information about a very, very thin slice of reality. And scientists tend to be smart, and unfortunately, they and I'm talking about myself as well, (laughs) we tend to uh, inflate the little bit we know about the world into the world at large. And so I will oftentimes hear physicists telling us why uh, psychic phenomena don't make any sense, but they don't know anything about psychology and vice versa. Psychologists will say, well, this doesn't make sense from a physics perspective, but they don't know what they're talking about. So a lot of the resistance comes about from, uh, from realistic skepticism, there are obviously a lot of times that things happen that are in fact delusional, uh, and not really psychic, uh, and also be- because of this, the 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 sunk cost that we have in our career, which rests upon our assumptions, some of which are correct, and as the history of science shows us, a lot of them are actually incorrect.
0: I think that it's it's really uh, I think a good step forward to start looking at the the delay in accepting psychic phenomena as being in part if not largely a sociological problem and i think that's something that you do in your new book uh the supernormal where you where you do spend a lot of time focusing on this whole problem of acceptance and and uh, again have has your uh views on this change over time, do you see a greater acceptance in the scientific community since you started uh, working on this and and working on your first book, or do you see things about the same as they were back in 1997
1: when you did The Conscious Universe? Well, if we go back a little bit further, I would say that uh, there have been uh, ebbs and flows uh, uh, in terms of how society views these things. Uh, back when J.B. Ryan was in his prime, for example, at Duke University, uh, around the 1930s or 40s, the mainstream media at the time and many, many scientists were basically thinking that this is proven. Now, you know, what what's next? Uh, that declined as behaviorism in psychology began to take hold, and behavior, behaviorism not only rejected psychic phenomena, it, it rejected consciousness as a phenomenon. So, an entire generation of psychologists were are basically telling all of their students that none of this stuff could possibly be real, because even consciousness is an illusion. Right. Uh, with the rise in the neurosciences, this the which is a kind of neo-behaviorist approach, uh, a lot of scientists and their students are, are being taught the same thing. That consciousness is an epiphenomenon of the brain. It may or may not have any meaning. But because it's all brain-related, then talks uh, talking about getting information from a distance doesn't make any sense. Nevertheless, we come to the 1960s. There's a psychedelic revolution. A lot of people are exposed firsthand to these and other phenomena. And public acceptance went back up again because regardless of what science was saying, personal experience was saying, no, the world is actually quite different. Then there's a period in the probably the 80s to 90s, where uh, interest again went down with the rise of um, uh, more modern neuroscience. And we're coming back into a time where it's beginning to rise again. And the way that I see this is the number of scientists and academics who contact me privately and expressing their interest most of them will still say that they don't want anybody to know that they're interested in it hmm. but since I'm a lightning rod for this I I get a lot of emails and phone calls from people who who are well trained in their own discipline and yet they they feel restless they want to do something about their either their personal experience or they've read some books and they 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 ask the same questions you just did what where is this resistance why is there so much resistance to this and so I I basically say the same thing, that we're dealing with uh, entrenched assumptions and uh, the inertia is just takes a long time to get through it.
0: Well, it's also a, a radical departure from the current modern mindset or the current materialistic mindset where everybody, you know, we're sort of viewed as robots acting out on a stage. We're separate creatures, no connection. Unless there is a particle that you can measure between brains or between a brain and a physical object, uh, that, that phenomena does not exist. And, and, you know, as you point out in a number of your books, and a, and a bunch of other people have done, you know, uh, it seems to me that quantum theory has at least destroyed one of the pillars to the entrenched opposition to parapsychology yeah what what effect if any do you think quantum theory has had on this field it
1: it has had such a major effect that most people are not aware of right yeah. it, you're right it yeah. is a a, a a radical as radical a change in our worldview as anyone can imagine it's just that it's so strange that most people don't know what to think about it right it's it's a way outside the realm of common sense so one of the ways I put it in the book is, uh that the, some of the pillars that we we rest on are things like uh l- locality causality uh and reality these are doctrines that that science rests upon uh locality means that uh things only get pushed around if you actually contact it that's it needs local contact causality is that uh, cause and effect is completely unidirectional you never go backwards in time uh and reality is that the, the world as it appears is uh, completely independent of whether anybody's looking at it. Right. So all three of these pillars plus a bunch of others are all completely demolished by quantum mechanics. Uh, and so if, if the pillars are gone, what are we resting on? And the truth is that the fundamentals of science, we're resting on nothing. This is one of the reasons why scientists are at least some are struggling now with the fundamentals of the, uh, the ontology that's presented by quantum theory, uh, so we can reestablish some kind of fundamentals to rest upon.
0: Yeah, and I, I don't think that point could be overemphasized because what you were saying a couple minutes ago about how, at different parts, different stages of neuroscience and the sciences, consciousness has come in and out of being in vogue. Well, there's no doubt, at least under some interpretations of quantum theory, that consciousness is front and center in, in if not the makeup of the physical world, at least the experience of the physical world. And, right. you know, there's plenty of, of books, uh, anywhere, anyone from Amika Swami to Harry Stapp to Bruce Rosenblum and uh, Fred Kuntner. There's all sorts of folks that... that give this a go but 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 for the the listener out there the reason why quantum theory at least in my mind is so essential here is because it shows really an unbreakable connection between consciousness and what we think of as the physical world and then dean you know at that point it's not a big step to get the psychic phenomena this this is why i don't understand why there is such a, an amazing resistance. This this is Philip Merton. This is conversations beyond science and religion. We're speaking with best-selling author Dean Radin about his new book, Supernormal Science: Yoga and the Evidence for Extraordinary Psychic Abilities. Uh, Dean, I just mentioned uh, quantum theory, and and it's and it seems to me that that with qu- quantum theory being sort of the, the anchor, that w- this field of investigating psychic phenomena has to, has to grow. It has to get more
1: established.
0: I mean, I, I don't see any choice in the matter.
1: Well, of course, we, we're human, and we can all make choices. Right. And, and the surprising thing is that we don't have to make rational choices. Right. In fact, I think we often don't make rational choices. Yeah, that's for sure you you don't need to look very far into the history of science and technology to realize that making rational choices about evidence is probably the the exception to the rule rather than the rule itself right we, we look back at how long it took the germ theory of disease to to actually be accepted and how many countless people died in the face of what we now look at as obvious evidence that there was something about germs right. so it the humans being what we are where we we adopt certain beliefs and basically it takes it takes a life and death transformation to begin to challenge those beliefs and that's why it can take generations it takes many generations mm-hmm. to to evolve into fundamentally new ideas so and this is still happening i mean uh in quantum mechanics it's very interesting I, in a paper i just wrote I found a, a reference to a conference a few years ago from, uh, from a, a number, a couple of dozen uh, physicists, all of whom were interested in the foundations of quantum theory. So they came together to discuss things like the quantum measurement problem and the ontological issues raised by quantum theory, and they were all asked a number of questions about their interpretation. One of those was, how important do you think consciousness is in, in understanding quantum theory? So half of them said it's absolutely critical and the other half said it has absolutely nothing to do <laughs> with the physical world yeah. so what this is important because it's showing that even among people who study this day yeah. in and day out have no consensus at all about very, such a fundamental issue yeah, so yeah. that's just a reflection of, of where we are
0: yeah and it's it's also amazing to me I mean quantum theory is a whole other topic but it but but you know you're one of the few people that that weaves together some of the findings of quantum theory with psychic phenomena. You're also, as far as I can tell, one of the few if not the only person to weave in the Indian philosophy and, and the yoga uh, aspect, which we're going to get to in a second here. But the the founders of quantum theory, those guys, and, and by that I mean Einstein, Schrodinger, um, Max Planck, those folks... Uh, really gave consciousness uh, a lot of emphasis um, and so it, it's almost like quantum theory has almost uh, been interpreted by some people with a materialistic uh, standpoint where, where they want to keep some of the findings of quantum theory but not wrestle with the real hard issue, the real tough one in the beginning which is the connection betwi- between consciousness uh, and, and the physical world now, now, one of the things that you do that's different in your new book, Supernormal, is that you draw parallels between between the yogas and and psychic phenomena. Now, what led you to draw this connection
1: well it's been known for many many years that uh, when you begin to look for alternative ways of thinking about how could psychic phenomena be true, and also what we know about physics? How can they both be true at the same time? Well, before the development of quantum theory, it was very difficult. There, some people had proposed things like there are multiple dimensions, and when the idea of the fourth dimension was was floated, and about 150 years ago, that was that was a popular way of thinking about this. Uh, but it, it it was it was not a very easy fit. So so people who have been interested in these ideas look elsewhere look in the esoteric literature and the occult literature and one place where you find not only a theoretical fit and i'm talking about the, the from the vedas primarily the the yogic philosophy is actually a kind of a an intermediary between a purely idealistic world and a dualistic world we we kind of we we pay lip service to being uh, monists, most scientists will, do, will say that they're monists, but they're really talking about uh, a kind of a dualist view of, of, uh, of how the world is stuck together. And so the, this struggle between, is it really just one world and there's one way of understanding everything, or do we need two different fundamental entities, subjective and objective? These are issues, of course, that have been discussed s- since the beginning of human history. So when you look at the yogic literature, it's the theoretical side that attracts our attention. But even more so is the legends, the lore about what happens when you begin to follow the yogic path, most of which is, is associated with meditation. When you look at that in some detail, as, as I did in Supernormal, you find that the whole panoply of different psychic abilities, including some that are way bigger than we're used to seeing, uh, but the whole thing is laid out. And it, not only is it laid out as something that happens as a result of meditative experience, but it's laid out in a matter-of-fact way. That the, simply, you, you do this practice, y- you will begin to experience telepathy and precognition and clairvoyance and a whole bunch of other stuff. And then just notice it and then go on because you don't want to get stuck there. So the first Book of Classical Yoga, written by Patanjali about 2,000 years ago, devotes an entire chapter, or you can think of it more as four four little books. One of those books is devoted to the development of psychic abilities. So this was written 2,000 years ago, and that was a book that was capturing the oral tradition from thousands of years before that. We either look at that as a massive delusion or as maybe as something real. So that, this was the, the issue that I was struggling with in this book. It was Patanjali and the other yogis, are they delusional or superstitious? Or were they telling something that is actually the way that, that the world is? And this is such an important point because those of
0: us in the U.S., we tend to think that we have a monopoly on the way to view the world and it's partly because of the authority and stature of science and science being materialistic but it is a fact of life that we don't have a monopoly on how to view the world and when you do start reading some of these Indian Hindu texts Buddhist texts you start appreciating as Dean just said that there is a whole other way to look at the world, which is done by probably more people than are in, are in the Western world. Where, whereas you say psychic phenomena is is normal, it's not. It wouldn't be called super normal, right? It would. It's it's part of it's part of their culture, right? And 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 uh, it's it's really an amazing. It's really an amazing thing. Now, I want to define a couple terms that you use just for the listener very quickly here. You use three terms. One of them is monism, and that is simply that all is the same substance. And typically in materialism, it would mean everything is stuff or a thing. Everything can be reduced to matter. Then right. there's idealism, which is everything is mind or consciousness. And then what we see is, is in some ways an illusion. And then, and then dualism, which uh, sort of is the cross between the two? Uh, it's it's the the world is both mind and matter, and then the big mystery there is how do they communicate? But it's right. very it's very important to have those topics, those those three terms understood to understand what we're talking about here, because depending on how you uh, which which one of these you adopt it influences how you would approach psychic phenomena, right? Right, right that's it, 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 takes, yep. it,
1: it, makes a, it makes a big difference. Yeah, and I, I try to stay away from talking about philosophy. Uh, I When I first wrote uh, this book, Supernormal, I was using words like ontology and epistemology a little bit too often. Yeah. And my editor said, look, this is a popular book, and if you use the word epistemology more than once, mm-hmm. no one will read it. Yeah. And, and he's right. So I, I pull back from the philosophical underpinnings here, but it, it's true that the, part of the, the, the struggle in society over, uh, from especially how scientists view these special abilities, really it comes down to your philosophical stance and how you think the world is stuck together. That's what, it, what it's about.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the contrast between, you know, the Western mindset where we tend to be materialistic monis or believe all that all is matter or dualism uh really colors i think our way of looking at psychic phenomena mm-hmm. now now with regard to your reading of the yoga literature was was there was there one thing in particular that stood out to you one one uh episode or one facet of pangeline's uh, uh writings or or what is it that you think uh, the the listeners should really know about these writings that might have them
1: dig a little deeper into them? Well, there, there are many books that uh, give a translation and commentary on the Yoga Sutras. That, that's what Patanjali wrote. Uh, they're mostly simple, except that the original is written in Sanskrit, and, of course, it, it's, it's an ancient language, and it can be translated in a number of different ways. Uh, So, there are different interpretations about what Patanjali was saying. Some people today interpret his description of the supernormal abilities as symbolic. Uh, These are typically interpreted that way by scholars from the West who have been trained to expect that all such abilities cannot exist. So, of course, they have to interpret it that way. Other people try to Translate it literally, and the literal translation is basically there are supernormal abilities. It's that simple. Uh, so, the 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 primary thing about yoga, the traditional yoga path, is not what we see today in the tens of thousands of yoga studios all over the place. Uh, what is taken for yoga now is primarily a, a quasi spiritual aerobics, basically. Right. right. Uh, there it, are it a lot of studies now showing that uh, the, the stretching, the exercise and so on are very beneficial for both mental and physical health. And so they're, they're catching on even in places you wouldn't expect to find it like the U.S. Army. So yoga and meditation turn out to be quite good for treating things like PTSD and, and many other chronic problems. Uh, but that's that's quite different than the original goal of yoga. The original goal was enlightenment. What what that means in a nutshell is that you be, you get to a realization that mm-hmm. what we would think of as yourself with a small s is identical to uh, self with a large s, which is the universe at large. Right. This is where the the famous Hindu saying of uh, brahman equals aman, atman. Atman equals Brahman. That means that you, you, your little self, and you, the self of the entire universe, are the same. That's the realization that you come to. And it's not an intellectual realization. It is a full-blown felt, you know that this is, in fact, true. So that's that's the goal of yoga, is to get you to that point, to realize it, and at that point, you also uh, are free because the realization changes your ego. When you when you realize that that you, yourself, and the and the whole universe are somehow the same, then our sense of little encapsulated ego vanishes. Hmm. And people in that state tend to be, from our from a normal perspective, they are suspiciously happy. <laughs> These are like looking at the Dalai Lama and the yeah. Dalai Lama giggles every yeah. third or fourth sentence. Yeah. And you know, we think that's quite pleasant, but if you're able to be inside a person like that, it's a, it'd be a very, very different kind of state. You're blissfully, happily, all the time. Yeah. So this seems like a nice state to get into, uh, perhaps, although not everybody wants to get there. <laughs> so so w- then what's all the, what is that related to the supernormal? Well, the passing through a stage where you begin to disassociate from your personal ego into a larger sense, you also begin to lose distinctions You lose the distinction between uh, me and you and now and then and here and there, all of those dualistic distinctions that we have built into our language. You personally, your own experience begins to change and you kind of see through the the dualisms that are, are out there and you see it as holistic. So you begin to experience you and the world as a holistic interconnected web. This is where stories like Indra's web Comes from. There's a lot of famous stories in the, in the Vedic uh, tradition are talking about the fundamental holistic nature of reality, including ourselves. So if you're not used to this kind of literature, it, it all sounds like hand-waving and namby-pamby and all, right. all the rest. Uh, but this is fundamentally what yoga is about, is to give you this experience of this kind of fundamental hol- holism. Now it is interesting, since you mentioned earlier on about quantum mechanics, that is the conclusion, basically, that you come to with quantum theory, that ultimately what it's what it's trying to do is describe a holistic a holistic environment and and we carve it up in various ways to describe the world and to measure it. But it isn't really made out of objects. It's made out of a web of interconnections. So that's, I mean, it's just an interesting sideline that historically physics started out by looking at objects and where it's ended up today, there are no objects anymore. In fact, not only no objects, but even what we thought were fundamentals like matter and energy, that begins to dissolve too into relationships.
0: This is Philip Merton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're speaking with Dean Radin. The author of a number of books, including *Conscious Universe*, *Entangled Minds*, and his new book *Supernormal*, and we're talking about the connection between yoga, meditation, and psychic phenomena. And I think it's it's very important. And you you do this in your book, Dean is that when you look at what the underlying basis of spirituality is I mean we talk I, I talk a lot about spirituality on this show and I hope nobody asked me to define the term but but Aldix Huxley wrote that book called A Perennial Philosophy and mm-hmm. if there's one common element to, to what we call spirituality it's that there's an underground an underlying ground to being there's some kind of unity to the world and you could dress, you could call it a field, an energy field, a quantum field, a a, a field of possibilities, whatever you want to call it. You call it God, of course, but but that's to me the power of the Hindu or the Vedic approach is that 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 whole thing about you, your one self or what we are as individuals are actually part of a whole and we're actually intermixed with the whole. That that all of a sudden if you adopt that standpoint then things like clairvoyance right and telepathy and even mind over matter all of a sudden it becomes explainable right Right. because because everything is a web and now and now all you got to do is figure out you know how the quote-unquote energy and i use that term loosely how it gets transmitted Mm -hmm. but but i don't i don't understand uh why and i'm why we haven't moved towards that standpoint a little faster I mean we both talked about this earlier but but it's so it's it's reaching a point where I think it's
1: sort of obvious that's that's my problem right now no I think it's only obvious for people who think about these issues yeah. uh, you know when you're designing the new iPhone yeah. you don't you don't think about these things it, yeah. And in fact, a case can be made that while well, the yogis were pretty smart, as some of what they wrote about was was almost certainly correct, and, and includes psychic and mystical experiences. The yogis didn't come up with the iPhone. Yeah, you know, the the ancients didn't have technologies like we have today, as far as we know, and that means that they were missing aspects of the real world too. That that we we spend a lot of time paying attention to certain aspects of reality and not too much about uh, what might be called subjective states and they spend a lot of time looking at subjective states and not so much external states.
0: Right.
1: So, what I, w- one thing I want to avoid then in, in the Im- impressions about the supernormal and the yogic path is not to say, not to go backwards and devolve into ancient lore, but to take the very best of that lore which we now know is true, take the very best of science and technology, which we know is true, and make something completely new. So the the 21st century should be about an integration of ancient knowledge and modern modern knowledge as well, integrated into something that neither the ancients nor us today actually know about yet. And that would be a major advancement.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. if
1: we if we just Took the ancient knowledge and, 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 and sort of went backwards on it. it. It sounds romantic, but it probably wouldn't be that healthy. And by the same token, if we keep running along the, we might think of as a simplistic materialistic track, we're headed for disaster. So we're going to be forced at some point to make a change and the direction of the change. Who knows? Well, I think that you just articulated
0: really what the challenge of our time is, and I, couldn't, I really agree with you because my uh, reservations about, about Hinduism, and this is my own personal spin, but it's, it's not that different from, from, from what you just said, which is that I, I think it's very helpful to know in the core of your being that you're part of a unity. But, I don't think that the purpose of life is to dwell on that and 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 be alone in a cave. I do think that we're supposed to be out in the world, but I think we're supposed to be out in the world with this with this uh this unity mindset with this feeling of being part of the whole mm-hmm. and and so and so, I think that's to me where how I would describe the integration, which I think is pretty close to what you just said and And I think that's the challenge of our time. And on the other point, with the iPhones and the technology, it comes up a lot on this show, but I think one of the one of the real difficulties we have is the amount of distractions in in the, in the modern world. There's not a lot of people sitting around dwelling on these topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, on the other hand, books like yours, uh, books by Fred Allen Wolf and Ambika Swami and Deepak Chopra there's more and more books being published that are pushing the envelope and there, and there are people buying them there's people listening to shows like this uh, that I do think are curious and frankly I hope that at the bottom of it all the people want the same thing we want which is this integration we want modern technology but we want to approach it with a
1: little more openness. Right, and, yeah. The, you know, one of the the, the ways of, of looking at this issue is how uh, how the idea of a collective mind is portrayed in literature and in movies. And what I'm talking about is like a movie like The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where, and, and these, this shows up everywhere from Shakespeare to you name it, so all over the place. It's the notion that That there's a a mind larger than our individual minds that somehow we merge into it. I'm not talking full-blown spirituality or God or anything like that, but simply something like a collective mind. Well, a collective mind has the potential of being a lot smarter than any one individual mind, in the same way that a whole bunch of nerve cells together can be end up being a lot smarter than one nerve cell. So the way that the the way that these stories usually spin out, in fact, all of them that I'm aware of, they, they end up being like the Borg on Star Trek. Mm-hmm. They're horrific. Yeah. The Invasion of the Body Statures is a horror film. They're always presented as this is something to resist at, at with every core of your being. You, right. you cannot be absorbed into this collective mind. And yet the way that the people inside the collective mind are portrayed is they're blissful. Yes. So this is this is seen yeah. as her, as horrific that somehow the person gets transformed and now they're very happy yeah. inside the mind. And yeah. not only that, they, everything is orderly and things you know everything is kind of working finally. Yes. And yet the the rugged cowboy American in particular looks at this as the most horrific thing that is that could happen. <laughs> it may be though that in order for humanity to take a next step and to get over uh, uh, squabbles having to do with basically tribalism. Uh, and uh, not distributing resources uh, equitably is to develop something like a collective mind. And I, I just saw, saw something the other day where uh, people living in the path of hurricanes on, on the ocean uh, in New Jersey, some of them didn't want to, the Corps of Engineers to put big sand dunes in front of them to protect their the property. And everybody has to agree to that. Otherwise, the sand dunes don't do any good. Well, a couple of them did not. They didn't want to block their view of the ocean. Hmm. And as a result, the whole community is destroyed. Yeah. And the reason that they give for not wanting to do this is because they, they personally think that they own the land and they don't, well, they do own it, but they they can make a decision for themselves without consequences for anybody else. And of course, that's never true in a society. Yeah. So we we need a major change of opinion on how we behave and what's important.
0: That's a really good metaphor that that story is a, is a, is a really good illus, illustration of of you know putting your own interest above others but not realizing I mean you have to realize that there is power in unity and that there is something better in unity for it really to carry weight I mean we tend to get lost and that is that's one thing that, that's going to take time and I, I don't know how long this whole evolution, is going to take but it does it does take a while it's something that as you get older you start appreciating that you know the friendships the unities, the uh, the togetherness that carries a lot more weight than material possessions to use a really mundane example but mm-hmm. but it's something that I think uh, grows with a, a rise in consciousness which I, which I also think is related to psychic abilities. And with that as by pivot, in your book, Supernormal, you study the effect of meditation or of, of, of experienced meditators upon, upon psychic abilities. And mm-hmm. and I'd like you to talk a little bit about that because because to me I think it's a good example of bringing these two fields together. So, so what led you to talk about meditation and, and what were some of the results you got?
1: Well, the, the, the Yoga Sutras, uh, basically, the, the whole yogic path is about meditation. It's about learning how to, to make your mind quiet and stable long enough so that you're able to experience deeper levels of mind. And it's in those deeper levels of mind, which in Sanskrit is called samadhi. It's a kind of a deep absorption state where you you begin to bump into these psychic effects. So researchers have known this for many years. They you know about the lore. They also know that, that meditators tend to do better in experiments than non-meditators. The... We still find this is the case, that when I do experiments now in the lab, I almost always will choose a meditator over a non-meditator, uh, if for no other reason than that they have their, their practiced and trained attention. That's what meditation is all about. It's how you use your attention. And experiments almost always involve asking somebody to do something with their attention. If they can't do it, then obviously they're not going to do very well in an experiment. So there's a very simple and pragmatic reason for working with meditators. Uh, and as far as the, the lore goes, the, the yogic lore and, and other traditions as well, they, they basically say that the reason why a psychic phenomenon is, uh, begins to appear is because at deep levels of mind and deep levels of matter, that begins to be the same place. That a very deep level of mental reality is the same as a deep level of physical reality. That's kind of what quantum mechanics is hinting at as well. If that's really true, then if you're if you're able to sink down in your mind into this deep substrate that is both mind and matter at the same time, and you put a little intentional or attentional spin in that in that space, then the physical world has to change. Why? Because they're the same thing. They're both starting from the same spot. The way that the physical world changes as a result uh, will basically emerges out of this deep state, uh, and it it affects you and others and, and all kinds of things. So, the the a big difference between spontaneous psychic experiences that people report in daily life, and the cities, the special abilities that the yogis develop, the difference is that the cities are are robust once you get to that level of of mental stability at these deep states you have enormous uh, power let's use that word because because you're there like you can you can do stuff guess you're living in that that substance that mind matter substance and uh, spontaneous synchronicity or a spontaneous moment of telepathy is coming out of the same place except it's spontaneous it's not not under your control so it tends to be more sporadic so that that's where the the meditative um tradition comes from and why it's so important in talking about these these kinds of psychic phenomena. And I I like to point out that
0: it's not always some unusual folks back in India or in the yoga studios or in in uh, in the meditation classes that have these abilities, I mean, you do it in your book, and, and I do it in my own book. The, there's a very there's a very short step to what we know as know as the athlete zone. I mean, everybody right. everybody has has been in the zone in one way or the other. I mean, I think that there's a close connection between being in the zone and what we call inspiration. Mm-hmm. There there's there's something that I quote in my own book about. There's was a call from Michael Jordan when he was—he scored like 50-some points in a basketball game, and he was interviewed, and he just said, I was in the zone, and I couldn't miss, and the basket looked like a swimming pool, and everything I threw up went in. I mean, that is a situation where all the ingredients that you were talking about are really there, you know, the right. focused attention, the concentration, the confidence, and and all of a sudden, you know, it looks as if they have that person in the zone has an inordinate control over the physical world, which, right. which is which is really interesting. A couple uh, shows ago, I had Joseph Gallenberger on, who wrote a book called Inner Vegas. Mm. If you, I don't know if you heard of it, but it's basically group psychokinesis uh, in Las Vegas, and it's sort of a entertaining kind of a book but it's, it's, it's the same basic thing where now you have group people uh, or a group of people going to the craps tables and, and really influencing the dice uh, but he, he does it more for fun it's not it's not scientifically rigorous so to speak but it shows the same basic thing uh, this is Philip Merton this is conversations beyond science and religion I'm lucky to have as my guest Dean Radin, the author of the new book, Supernormal, Science, Yoga, and the Evidence for Extrasensory Psychic Abilities. And I think a lot of people are probably wondering of of the experiments that you've done, and, and you're probably known as being the the, the the top scientific investigator of psychic ability. And you've collected a lot of data, and anyone who wants to know more, you know, read, read any of Dean's books, and it, it really is impressive, the, uh, the, uh, the research that you've done and the, and the studies that you uh, accumulate. But I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, what, what field of psychic phenomena do you think is, is the most scientifically verified?
1: Well, I would say it is probably telepathy. Uh, And telepathy in the popular mind is hearing somebody else's thoughts, um, sometimes literal thoughts, and that's very, very rarely the case. It's much more often that uh, you can sense somebody else's intention. Uh, You may sense it as a gut feeling, uh, as an emotional connection. Spontaneously, uh, these things tend to be under uh, extraordinary situations like life and death, uh, but sometimes much more mundane, like the phone rings and you pick it up and you know who it is before you answer the phone.
0: Right.
1: The the reason why th- that as a phenomenon is uh, probably among the most well established is simply because it has been repeated for now for over 40 years. The same kind of experiment repeated again and again, and uh, I'm talking about a style of experiment called the Gonsfeld which is a German word meaning whole field. It's a type of a sensory, not deprivation, but a sensory stimulation method using unpatterned stimuli. And of course I talk about this in great gory detail in my books. (laughs) The, The point of it though is that here you have a very simple experiment. It's been done now thousands of times by laboratories around the world, including by skeptics who don't believe it for a second, and you keep getting about the same result and that's what counts as real in science you get multiple independent replications including by skeptics and you get the same result that's why that's what establishes telepathy in this case conscious telepathy as a real phenomenon and make it even stronger there's a, a variety of different kinds of experiments they look not at conscious Connections between people, but unconscious connections as measured by changes in physiology. And those also are quite strong. And you take those and you combine them with conscious report experiments, you're basically left with no doubt, as far as, as best as science can figure out anything, that these phenomena are real. And the moment that you open the door for the possibility of telepathy being real, which, by the way, even major skeptics now agree. That if, there was, if this was simply a matter of analyzing data, there's no doubt that these phenomena are real. Uh, the difference between a professional skeptic and a normal skeptic is that professional skeptics are adept at saying, well, there's something going on, but I'm not going to call it psychic because I don't know what it is. Well, I do call it psychic because, after all, the experiment is designed to mimic what people report in the real world. It's the design. Do they, they somehow know what's happening to somebody else at a distance. That's what the experiments, that's where they came from. So while the term may not be exactly correct, the fact that there's some kind of connection between people is very firmly established, I think. One of the, the
0: facts of scientific research that I think we tend to overlook when evaluating psychic phenomena is this whole thing about chances... Chances against or odds against, and and what it takes, what kind of probability it takes to establish a scientific theory or a scientific fact. It's not just psychic phenomena. I mean, you mentioned earlier the germ theory. I mean, or another example would be um, drugs, the FDA approved drugs. You know, what what right. percentage of people have to be cured before the drug is considered to be viable? Mm-hmm. And and I know that you you've done you reported about about these about the metadata analysis, and I think it would be helpful just just to just to say a few words about about what this metadata and maybe it's the Gansfield what it does uh, in terms of proving these events as true using uh, the accumulation of statistics.
1: Well, the accumulation of studies is specifically designed to see whether or not an effect is repeatable. That's that's really the reason. And this is because whenever you do a study involving human performance or human health or physiology, there's huge variations between people and there's also huge variations in the same person from one time to the next. So th- this is what a statistician would call a problem of variance. You have just a wide range of, of measurements when it comes to any one person. So if you do an experiment, with with a couple of people trying to establish something like telepathy the experiment might work maybe it won't work and and by working I mean that the the hit rate in an experiment you can establish a hit rate which might be 25 percent by chance that you will select one of four pictures one of which is the real target and three are decoys and if somebody's trying to send you one of those pictures then by chance you'll select it correctly one in four times so if you do that experiment once and your your subject correctly identifies the one picture that was being sent you're not going to it's nothing to write home about because maybe it was maybe it was a fluke it could happen one of four times right. so you do the experiment again and you do it again and you do it again and again thousands of times with lots of people and you can slowly gain increasing confidence as a result of of all of these accumulated studies so the same process is, works, as you said, for things like drug trials. Drugs tend to have very, very small effects. Some drugs, for example, uh, aspirin, may require 50,000 people in a variety of experiments over many years in order to establish that taking aspirin, for example, helps prevent a second heart attack. Yeah. And it was on the basis of a very long sequence and tens of thousands of people that aspirin was approved by the F- FDA for its ability to help in cardiovascular health. So the reason why uh, why, why bear aspirin now is just one example. Bear aspirin has this little heart healthy thing, uh, symbol associated with it is because of the huge number of studies that showed that indeed on average, that people taking an aspirin will have slightly better cardiovascular health. But the amount of slightly better is actually much less than the amount that we see telepathy happening in our experiments.
0: Yes, and that's a powerful point, and that I think is really something that needs to be emphasized. For some reason, the standard of proof that is imposed upon psychic phenomena is higher than the standard of proof that science uses for more
1: traditional experiments. But that's because uh, the the skeptic will usually say that you need extraordinary proof to establish an extraordinary claim. What the extraordinary is referring to, and the reason I use that in the title of my book, Extraordinary Psychic Abilities, it's referring to theory. Because theory is the thing that makes something extraordinary or not. So just to give an example, when uh, back in the 1700s, when meteorites were falling out of the sky, people would pick them up and bring them to the French Academy of Sciences, and the scientists would throw them away, saying, it's impossible for rocks to fall out of the sky. You're delusional. That's because the theory at the time had no room for rocks flying around in outer space, so they couldn't, there's nothing to fall out of the sky. Hmm. So we have the same problem today, that our, our theories tend to be what people will accept as true versus not true. And so mm-hmm. if someone is holding a theory about the structure of reality that is that is basically incorrect, but nevertheless they believe it, then some things they simply cannot admit as being true. It can only be superstition and only and, and it doesn't matter what the evidence is. The empirical evidence could always be Hand waved away as being flawed in some way, and there are lots and lots of examples showing how, when referees for a paper they're evaluating a paper to see whether to be published, their assessment of the of the methodology is completely dependent on their uh, their sense of whether the theory that's described in the paper is correct or not. If they agree with the theoretical construct of the paper, then the methodology is great. If they disagree, then it's flawed. It's that simple and again showing how much our assumptions drive what we allow to be true and it, and it points up
0: sort of a fact that we tend to forget which is that scientists are really people as well and they're biased there's biases they're normal people that and I and you know I'm not uh, part of the scientific community so so I could be a little bit more blunt sometimes on some of this but but there's but to me I think there's part of a territorial war going on where where the the mainstream materialistic scientific uh, approach sort of uh, is is king of the hill or or they have the ter- the authoritative territory and they don't want any intrusions but I I have to think that with with research like yours with a lot of things going on with with uh, things like the dark matter and the multiverse and the fine tuning of the universe, all these other topics uh, that I talk about in other shows, I mean, there really is, I think, a slowly eroding foundation for what we know as materialism. Um, and i'm I'm happy I'm happy that 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 there's somebody like you out there. That it, that it applies such a rigorous approach um, to this field. Now, in in closing, I'm just going to ask you a little bit about what you're up to. I mean, I I take it you've spent a lot of time in your new book, so you're probably relaxing, but but no 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 no, no time relaxing. for relaxing no <laughs> time for relaxing. What what uh and so what what other projects are you are you working on right now?
1: Well, let's see. I'm. In the midst of analyzing data from a field consciousness experiment yeah. uh, that we did at Burning Man, so wow. Burning Man is a, a big uh, art festival that happens in the middle of the desert in Nevada. Oh, that's
0: right, I heard about that. Right. Right.
1: right. Yeah. So this year there were sixty thousand people that that show up in the middle of the desert where there's literally nothing. They truck everything in. It's a big art festival. Lots of lots of fun, and then they all leave, and they leave nothing. That's part of the the the, the joy of this. They, a big gathering appears, and then they disappear, and there's nothing left. Not even any sign of anybody. Yeah, that's cool. So the, uh, the big event at the at Burning Man is the burning of the man. They have a, a large man effigy, and, and they burn it at the end, and everyone gathers around, and it's a big party and so on. So that you have 60,000 people all focused on this one major event. We are doing an experiment for years now looking at the relationship between collective mind – and matter not individuals but collective so here we have 60,000 people all focusing on this one event is that detectable as a change in the environment in some way and so I'm analyzing the data from that experiment uh, we have a, a multi-year ex- series of experiments going on looking at uh, mind-matter interaction at the quantum scale which you talk about in supernormal uh, we've been doing experiments on mediumship uh, we're about to start a series of experiments on telephone telepathy, uh, following up on Rupert Sheldrake's work, uh, and then of course I have uncountable number of articles that I need to write and I need to review. It's it, it's a constant <laughs> march.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think well, it sounds like a really interesting, interesting. Uh, field of work and and I, I want to again uh, direct the listeners to any of Dean Radin's books uh, again if, you're, if you really want to see a rigorous and, and, and creative treatment of psychic phenomena I think one of, one of Dean Radin's books is the place to start. Uh, this is Philip Merton this is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Dean i like to thank you uh, a whole lot for joining us I think that what we what we see here is that as we start drawing connections between not only uh, real world experiences but things like quantum theory and yoga and spirituality together with psychic phenomena we are starting to see hopefully a new worldview forming again this is Philip Merton it's Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Merriton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com.